Hey, everybody, it's me, Erica. And Rachel. And you are listening to Story Crime Podcast. Woo-hoo-hoo! Happy Halloween, Erica. Happy Halloween, Rachel. So we know that this is coming out Friday, but for anyone listening, we are recording this on Monday, October 31st, 2022. My favorite day of the year. It's been a good day for a Monday. I will say that. Yeah. Mondays don't suck Guinness. Book of World Records. (laughs) It was hard to get out. (laughs) Um, Especially since usually Halloween in a kindergarten classroom can royally suck and be a pain in the ass but it actually was quite nice today the kids were really good we had a lot of fun um like i'm gonna say 80 percent of them 90 percent of them dressed up and then i had a bunch of costumes in our dress up center that i dressed them in the ones that wanted the coolest costume you saw the coolest one there of the whole school doesn't have to be just the kindies well okay so in the kindergarten classroom in my specific classroom we had one little girl that came dressed as a queen and it was like okay you're a queen. Yes, but her, queen. her dress lit up. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, I never <laughs> saw that before. And then um, in the whole school, one of the teachers dressed as Beaker. I really like that costume. Oh, that yeah, cool. that's cool. Um, but there were, oh, and then, sorry, another one of my kids in my class, he didn't wear it to school because it was too crazy. But what he's wearing tonight, his parents made him out of cardboard boxes. He wanted to be an excavator for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> and they made a costume that was an ex- excavator. And so it's it looks amazing. It looks like he's a construction worker kind of sitting in it. And yeah. then he can control it. Oh That's my God. It was awesome. really cool. So I usually, I do bus duty at the end of the day at my school. So I didn't actually, and he's a walker. So he got picked up at the back of the school. So I didn't actually get to see it, but my teaching partner took videos of it and it was amazing. Amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. I like when that, kind of creativity comes through and it's not just a walmart costume yeah i um desperately wanted to go as chewbacca because my kids at work call me cookie so i wanted to go as cookie the wookie i'm wearing a chewbacca costume could not find it and so i was at dollarama and uh now that they've got their prices they had a costume and it was an angry birds darth vader pig So I bought it, but then I got home and I was like, this is a child's costume, which I knew like on the box it says, or on the bag it said it. But I was like, it looks bit like it looks like I could just slip it on. I could not even get it. I'm not a heavy chested uh, gal, but I couldn't get it even over my uh, teeny beanies up here. Like I had to cut open the entire bottom of it just to get it on. Oh no. Did it still look good? It looked okay. You could tell the proportions were definitely off. (laughs) (laughs) They're just kindergartners. The kids liked it. They and yeah, I had my baby Yoda earring, so I actually wore like one Mandalorian earring, one baby Yoda earring, and then had my Darth Vader costume on, which really doesn't make any sense because it's totally different (laughs) timelines in the Star Wars universe. But here we are. (laughs) You know what? Someone like me wouldn't know the difference, and the the kids didn't know the difference. Exactly. What did you dress up as? Because you've gone to a few celebrations now, I bet. Um, yeah, I'm a football player this year. You know, go sports. <laughs> go sports. What, what team? Um, I don't know, white and blue? <laughs> <laughs> no team? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. The Bulldogs. It's just one of them generic spirit <laughs> Halloween costumes. Oh, geez. You went for the big guns at Spirit. Uh, no, I bought a jersey. That's a crop top. <laughs> cool it was twenty dollars cool 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 cool. (laughs) love it although i kind of want to show you my purse um it's within arm's reach and one second okay so this (laughs) was my purse (laughs) (laughs) for uh description's sake it is a children's halloween boss basket i think but it's the shape of a football and it is amazing it has a handle yeah so then i I went to the dollar store and I got like a, a bag. It's like a, I don't know, bag? a toiletry bag. Yeah. <laughs> and I hot glued it inside. So now it zips up. <laughs> nice. Oh my God. I love it so much. That's perfect. Now you can, yeah. Now you'll have to be a football player every year because why did you go through all that hard work? 
Well, to add to my Halloween costume collection, it's my favorite day. Of course, I have multiple costumes. Oh, not me. It's just I have yeah. one Minnie Mouse costume that I normally wear every year and switched <laughs> it up this year. But now, to like a wonky Darth Vader, to a wonky Darth Vader that did not fit me properly. <laughs> so I'll be going back to Minnie Mouse next year again. Fair. Maybe you can borrow one of mine. I have a couple of like witches and stuff. Awesome. Well, speaking of uh, all the Halloween and all things spooky, ooky, I have been watching such a great show on Netflix, and I need to talk about it because right, it? it unearths some memories from the '90s that I forgot existed about the book series by Christopher Pike called The Midnight Club. And I am dead. I have been watching the show. I'm sh- I don't remember any of the stories from the actual books, but mm-hmm. the show is fabulous. So the whole premise yeah. of it is that the these are kids that are like terminally ill and they're living at a hospice. And every night at midnight they get together and they tell spooky stories. Okay. Mm. And so every night they're getting together and they're doing this. But in the show, what's happening is outside of that, the hospice that they're at is apparently haunted and has some things going on. I don't want to spoil it, but I'm telling you guys, if you get a chance to watch the show, watch it. And also if anyone has a way to make me 20 years younger, I have a serious crush on one of the kids in the show, (laughs) but he's far, he's only 19. So I need to be like, to make it appropriate. I need to go back in time. Yeah. So, wow. That's cool. That reminds me of that one show. Um, they used to go like in the woods. Oh, are you afraid of the dark? Uh, yes, are you afraid of the dark? Submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society. The, yeah, this that, uh, that show was scary because who? I think just the part of them walking through the woods to their campfire was the most scary part. <laughs> like, um, what are you doing? I I used to watch that a lot, but I remember if anybody out there watched this show, you might remember this too. There were a few episodes where this comedian named Bobcat Goldthwaite was in it and he had that really weird voice. Yes. Oh my yeah. God. And uh, yeah, that's what I remember most about that show is that guy being Are in it. in the dark? Uh, yeah, that's like those episodes because I think he ran a magic shop. So he was almost like a recurring character. Okay. <laughs> and then there's one where the mirror makes them old or Ooh, something. Oh, yes. I remember that. Oh my God. Trip down memory lane. Yeah. Wasn't that a Canadian show? I, it was a Canadian show. Remember Gary? Oh, my heart. I love Gary. Yeah, he was also on um, Eric, Student Bodies. Or and he, Student it? Bodies, and he was on, I think, the show called Eric's World with Eric Negler. And Eric's we, World, yes! <laughs> and you all know how I, love, how I love Eric that, Negler. That is a blast from <laughs> the past. Eric's World what is... What song he sang with his son? Daddy, stop teasing, it's not very not pleasing. pleasing. It's me and my dad's song. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's like, actually, not just me and my dad's song, like my dad's song with like all three of us. Yeah. We sang it all together all the time. So, yeah. What a classic. Yeah. People probably don't even know who Eric Nagler is. He's always like the forgotten elephant show. He's all like, he's part of that, like Sharon Lois and Bram. Uncle, yeah. He was, well, like the buddy that always came with the banjo and the sewer phone. Yeah. 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 Fuck, that was such a good good Now I want to watch that. (laughs) <laughs> oh, we, I've tried to put it on at work for the kids. They are not interested. If it is not like the weirdest shit you could ever imagine, they do not care. They're not. How is a walking elephant not the weirdest shit? Oh, they just, they want it weird. They're like, you know what? This is lame. <laughs> and it, it, there's parts of the show that make rational sense, so we can't watch it. We need a show right. that makes entirely no sense whatsoever. Right. Oh, man. What a good show. Mm-hmm. Anywho. Well, that was a nice blast from the past, Erica. Thanks for that walk. I miss the 90s. I need the 90s. However, we're going to talk about something very, very not happy for the rest of this time. So I'm glad we started on a happier note before we get into this. Um, Yeah, part two. Part two of William Bonin coming at you, the freeway killer. And last week, we kind of gave you the rundown of Bonin's horrific childhood uh, riddled with every kind of fucking abuse you could ever imagine. Um, and we also talked about a lot of his early crimes, various sexual assaults that he committed, his stints in prison and that kind of stuff. And I think we sort of ended off talking about how his crimes were starting to make their way into the press and how he loved it. Mm-hmm. So like I said, uh, if you think that his the coverage of his crimes would, you know, maybe slow bonding down a little bit, um, take a break and reevaluate his entire life's choices, you would be very wrong because uh, (laughs) 
He's not rational or reasonable, and William Bonin didn't just not slow down, he amped things up a bit. Oh, good. So he, like I said, he would cut out clippings from his crimes, save them, make a scrapbook, and he loved reading about them and sharing them with his accomplices and like reading them excerpts from his little scrapbook. And it was also like his crimes weren't only making it into the newspapers, it was also making its way into the actual news, being on TV, being reported on. So he loved watching that, tuning in. And uh, in one of the documentaries I watched, which weirdly came out on the day we recorded that last episode, it was an ID discovery documentary that just debuted that day. Had no idea it was coming. Um, The one guy that was in it said that he used to to work with Bonin. And one night they were together and watching TV and this news thing came on about the freeway killer. And he said to Bonin, oh, man, like, that's horrible. I hope they catch this guy. And he's like, you know what? I really hope they catch him, too. Which, <laughs> no, you didn't, Bonin. You didn't care. Wow. You wanted to keep going because you were a dick. Anyways. Now, the last murder we covered last week was the murder of Bonin's partner, 18-year-old Lawrence Sharp. And just a week after Lawrence's murder, Bonin would strike again. A week later? Yes. Jesus, dude. On May 19th, 1980, Bonin would ask his pal Vernon Butts to accompany him to go looking for a victim. But- I'm so glad his last name is Butts. Yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> Butts is a butt. Mm-hmm. Now, this time, Butts would actually decline to go with Bonin, and we'll see that, like, from this point on, he doesn't want to participate no matter how much Bonin asks or tries to get him involved. He's just like, nah, man, I'm, I think I'm good doesn't negate anything he did before. Vernon Butts is still a butt. And then he's a butt until the end of time. Anyway, so Bonham went ahead and just committed this next crime on his own. Rare for him, but he did do it occasionally. Hmm. He would abduct 14-year-old Sean King, who was... 14? Oh, come on. He was waiting on a bus stop. And after torturing, raping, and strangling young Sean... Bonin actually went back to Vernon Butt's place to brag about what he had just done, almost like he was seeking Vernon's approval in some way. So that strange. Sucks. It's so bizarre. Now, Sean's body wouldn't be discovered until after Bonin's arrest, but we are going to talk about that later. Now, after the murder of Sean Kang, Bonin would meet a 19-year-old homeless man named James Monroe. James was originally from Michigan, and he had moved to California to meet up with a friend his plans kind of fell through, and he ended up getting being homeless, living on the streets of L.A. He was in a desperate spot when he met Bonin, and when Bonin offered him a place to stay in return for, for sex, he accepted. Mm-hmm. James would move in with Bonin and his mother in their home in Downey, California. Bonin helped James out by getting him a job at Dependable Driveaway, where Bonin himself worked. And James would say that Bonin was a good guy. Really normal. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, it was at this point that the police had finally started to see a pattern in what was happening. Because remember, from last week, the police were in living their best lives in this state called denial. Yeah. Where they wanted. And honestly, one of the things that did, they did say later was that coming out and saying they had a – like, they they weren't in as much denial as what it appeared. They figured there was probably a serial killer doing this. But to come out and proclaim that puts a lot of pressure on the police, which. They're not about to get pressure on them. It's the police. (laughs) We don't put pressure on the police. Like I can on one hand understand that they don't want that public pressure. They want to work maybe even behind the scenes trying to solve this without the public Mm -hmm. saying like we need results now. But on the other hand, it's like maybe you needed that pressure a little bit because like look at all these people like last episode. We covered 16 murders within, like, a six-month span. That's wild. Yeah. Wow. So 16, and they're like, no, they're not connected at all. Yeah. So I, I think they were just living in denial. I think they knew they were connected, but they didn't want to admit it because of that, that added pressure that it puts on them. And I'm not sure. defending them at all. They're the police. That's their job. Unfortunately, that job comes with a lot of public pressure, or just a lot of pressure in general. Mm-hmm. But it is your job. You chose yeah. it. Don't be a detective if you don't want to detect. Yeah. So they had finally come to the realization that they did have a serial killer on their hands. And Orange County investigator Bernie Esposito, along with his partner at the time, they would start a task force with other officers from the LAPD and Los Angeles County. This task force started working the case hard at this point, and they were searching for any evidence that they could to find the person responsible for these crimes. Now, also around this time, 
David, if you remember from last episode, he was the 14-year-old that uh, Bonin sexually assaulted and then let go. And at, when okay. he let him go, he said, don't worry, we'll meet again or or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that uh, young guy, um, he would read articles in the paper about the freeway killer. And after he read the articles, he thought for sure that it was William Bonin that was committing these crimes. Wow. So, so he actually contacted the task force to tell them about his like the attack that he experienced and who Mm -hmm. he believed the officers should be looking at. Years later, in an interview with Nancy Grace, David was quoted as saying, I kept reading the newspapers, and every time I would read these stories about kids coming up dead, it was just like in my stomach. I could just feel it. Like he just knew. Oh, my God. Yeah. Imagine just reading that and then thinking, too, like, wow, that could have been me. That was almost me. Yeah. Like, terrifying. In May of 1980, William Pugh, one of Bonin's other accomplices, he was arrested for stealing a car. While being held in a juvenile detention center, because he's only 17 or 18 at this point, right. he heard on the radio about the search for the freeway killer. Now, he knew that this was his buddy, William Bonin, and he decided to use this to his advantage. He would confide in a counselor at the detention center that he had information pertaining to the murders and said he would give it to them if... Uh, the police would make a deal with him about the car theft that he was involved in. Okay. He would end up giving the officers Bonin's name, a description of his van, and the fact that he kept a scrapbook full of clippings about the murders in the uh, the van's glove box. Now, the officers from the juvenile detention center would obviously relay this information to a man named Sergeant John St. John, who was from the LAPD, and he was really working the case uh, pretty hard as well. Mm-hmm. He came to interview William Pugh the next day, and Pew would again tell his story. However, Pew would conveni- conveniently leave out the fact that he had participated in the murder of Henry Todd Turner. Oh, how convenient. Yeah. Must have slipped his mind, did yeah. it? Now, LAPD officers started doing an extensive background search on William Bonin at this point, which revealed the fact that he had a string of convictions for sexual assaults on minors. Detectives would start interviewing Bonin's known associates, stopping at Everett Frazier's home to conduct an interview. Now, Everett Frazier was the friend of his that would have parties, and this is where he met William Pugh, Vernon Butts, and Greg Miley, his other accomplice. Yeah. At first, Everett believed that they had the wrong guy, like, this is his friend Bonin, or William Bonin, like, Bill to everybody, right? Like, But then the detectives started showing maps to Everett Frazier. And it indicated kind of like the proximity of the sites of the disappearances or where the bodies were found to Bonin's home, to Everett Frazier's place, to the, you know, liquor store that Bonin would go to, to the bars that Bonin would go to. And all of a sudden, Everett Frazier saw that pattern of what was happening and it just hit him. He basically was just like, I, I just knew it was him. Like, it just was like, everything makes sense. Mm-hmm. They they definitely have the right guy. My friend is the freeway killer. Wow. So he started giving them any information that he could think of that could point to Bonin as being their guy. And the police would end up using that information they had. And they were able to actually get Bonin put under like around the clock surveillance. Oh, wow. They waited patiently to catch him in the act of committing a crime so they could bring him in. And we are going to talk more about that surveillance in just a second. So just hold on to that and don't, don't, don't lose your shit in a second. Okay. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> On June 2nd, 1980, Bonin and his newest accomplice, 19, sorry, his newest accomplice was James Monroe, in case you didn't catch that when we were talking about it earlier. He was the homeless guy that he invited to live with him. Okay. So they lured 19 year old Stephen Wells back to Bonin's mother's house with the promise of $200 for sex. Bonin hmm. would suggest to Stephen that he let him tie him up. And because he needed the money that Bonin was offering, he agreed. Bonin would immediately begin to assault Stephen once he was back at the house, raping and torturing him while he struggled to break free from his bonds. James Monroe claimed that he was watching TV in another room until Bonin called out for him to join. James said that he declined, but Bonin insisted. James said, at that point, I knew it was real. I told him, no, don't do this. And he said, it's too late. There's nothing that you or I can do to stop it. James would later tell police that it was like Bonin was in an absolute frenzy. He said he was yelling at his victim, telling him to shut up. You're going to die. James said it was like he was a monster. After killing Stephen, Monroe helped Bonin move his body into his van, and the two men drove to to Vernon Butt's house. 
Now, I just want to be clear on something here. James Monroe minimizes his involvement in this crime. However, I do not believe that he was as uninvolved as he makes it out to be. Right. It he when he's describing this to police, he makes it out as if he was a observer of the crime, right. not a participant. And although he never comes right out and says it, and we'll see why that he doesn't really have a trial or anything like that when it comes to this. Um, he, I think he was more involved than what he says. However, I don't know. I'm just speculating. So sure. now, like I said, after killing Stephen, Monroe Hope Bonham moved the body into his van and the two men drove to Ber- Vernon Butts house again to brag to Vernon Butts as though Vernon Butts is some, I, I don't, I don't really understand. Worshipped God? Like, what yeah, the like, fuck? It's yeah. like Bonin desperately wants the approval of Vernon Butts. I don't know why. <laughs> now, Monroe said that when they went inside, Bonin bragged about what he had just done and started bragging about all the other murders, too. And he would start showing Monroe pictures of ID cards of the 21 victims that he had. Um, pictures, the clippings from his scrapbook, bragging about how he did all these murders. After leaving Vernon Butts' house... Monroe helped Bonin dispose of Stephen Wells's body behind an abandoned gas station. Mm. Later that night, Bonin would tell Monroe, Monroe that he was the freeway killer and had other accomplices. He said that he had killed over 45 people and that he'd better keep his mouth shut about what they had just done. Holy Appa- shit, 45? Right. This and, guy's an animal. And I don't even think he's lying. I will tell you no. that much for free. Yeah. Apparently, James started to cry at this point, but Bonin told him to stop because he wasn't going to kill him unless he decided to run or call the police. Jesus. To which I say, James, call the police. Just call I them. I mean, the just man go. killed 45. I feel like he's not afraid to kill you, too. Yeah. Just, just call Maybe them. call them in secret. Like, don't do it in front of them. Now, after this, after having this conversation, the two of them went to bed and they shared a room, but were, like, on twin beds, I think. But James was... yeah. They're like like Bonin's in his 30s and he has twin beds and he's sharing. I don't understand. Anyways, so they went to bed and James was feeling really uneasy about everything. Now, I'm going to read you straight because I didn't know how to paraphrase this and it just sounded weird when I did. So I'm going to read to you straight from the book about this by Jack Rosewood. Mm -hmm. James Monroe said, he got up, came over to me and told me, I know a way you can trust me. I asked him how, and he said, let me tie you up so you will know that I will not kill you. Um, let me no f- thanks. I let him tie me up the same way that he tied up Stephen Wells. Then he told me that he could kill me and that there was nothing I could do. I started to cry and I pleaded for my life like Wells did. He started to laugh and said, I'm not going to kill you. But if I ever ran from him, he would kill me. And that if he could not get me, his partners would. I told him, okay, and then I would not run. So he untied me. I was so scared. I did not want Bonin or his partners to get me. My God. I do not feel bad for you. I'm sorry if I sound like I am mocking him. Well, no, he was a killer too. So, like, I am mocking him. So, yeah. Because I just firmly believe that he was more involved than what he says he is, but he was a killer. Yeah. Yeah. Now, like I said, the murder of Stephen Wells took place on June 2nd, 1980, and it was that same night, just after Stephen's body had been disposed of, that the police officially put Bonin under surveillance. So they had killed Stephen Wells, put him in the van, took him to Vernon Butts, and then disposed of his body behind the gas station. They returned home, and then the police started surveilling them when they returned home. No shit. Imagine. Like, you can't make this shit up. No, you cannot. It would take just nine days of the police watching William Bonin do mundane things like go to the grocery store, head off to work, go to visit friends, et cetera, et cetera, before they would finally spot him acting suspiciously. Hmm. It would seem that for those nine days, Bonin was trying to lay low, but of course, his desire to kill would over would be overwhelming. And on this particular evening, the police watched as Bonin approached five different young men trying to lure them into his murder van. God. After failing to find a victim fi- several times, Bonin was finally successful at luring a 15-year-old boy into his van. Police knew that this was their time to pounce on their suspected freeway killer. Yeah. However. No, no howevers. The police watched as the boy got in the van and Bonin nope. pulled away with his latest victim. They followed Bonin to a deserted beach parking lot where he had pulled over. The police approached the van. They listened. 
Then they could hear what sounded like a struggle going on inside, and so they opened the door only to find Bonin in the act of raping and attempting to strangle the young man he had abducted. And I don't want to throw too much shade on the police. They did their thing. They got there. They arrested him. However, why? Why did he have to get raped first? Yes. Now, because maybe then it's more evidence. Like, oh, you're caught in the act. Like, you can't dispute it. You you're can't guilty. Deny this. Caught red-handed. I. But still, no. no. Save the poor boy. He does not need to be raped. That is fucking bullshit. I don't think I would be alone here in saying that they waited too long. They should have yeah. uh, maybe not just listened outside the van. Yeah. No. Oh my god, that's infuriating. Yeah. Bonin was arrested, and when the police searched the van, they found numerous pieces of evidence linking him to the murders. This included tape, rope, an assortment of knives, uh, a tire iron, if you remember he used that to tighten the Mm -hmm. the t-shirts. They found pliers, coat hangers, but the most compelling piece of evidence was, of course, that scrapbook full of newspaper clippings that he kept in the glove box, just like William Pugh said he did. Forensic teams also identified what appeared to be bloodstains in the back of both Bonin's van as well as inside his mother's house after they got a search warrant to search his property. Yeah. On June 11th, 1980, Bonin was booked on suspicion of murder along with various charges regarding the sexual assaults. Good. He was held on Finally. Yeah. He was held on a $250,000 bond. Bonin would initially deny any involvement in the crimes. But then a letter came from the mother of Sean Kang. Remember, I told you to put a pin in that. Sure did. Uh, so that arrived at the jail for Bonin. And in that letter, she pleaded with her son's killer to tell her where his body was because they never found his body until after Bonin was arrested. After reading the letter, Bonin decided to confess, starting with telling investigators where Sean's body was and that he was going to take them to the body. Hmm. And at this point... You might not be thinking, but some people might be thinking, okay, well, that letter got to him. It hit him in a feels that he didn't know he had. Mm -hmm. But that is not the case. Motherfucker. What Bonin really wanted was a hamburger. And he said later in interviews, it was dying for a burger. I knew that if I went with the cops, they would buy me a burger. What an actual piece of shit. Now, after leading the police to Sean King's body, he then confessed to the murders of 21 young men and boys. Later oh. on, Sergeant John St. John would admit that he actually tricked Bonin into confessing because it wasn't Sean, Sean King's mother, after all, who had written that letter. It was him. Oh, now, what a tricky little devil. Now, the letter itself may not have worked entirely the way they thought it was, but it got the job done. So I guess, sure, it's a win. I hope he didn't get a fucking burger, though, also. Like, oh, here's your body. Can I have a burger? I'm sure he probably No, you did. cannot have a fucking burger. This is not... Uh, get out of here. <laughs> I would just have somebody, like, continuously cooking burgers in the hallway. Just on a grill. Yeah. Just so he can smell or them. Or get a burger and then eat it right in front of him. <laughs> now, Bonin would share with police officers and detectives every disgusting detail of what he had done to the boys and men who had the misfortune to cross paths with him. As he casually and nonchalantly confessed to his crimes, he got increasingly more grisly and graphic about the details, and he was very obviously enjoying reliving all of these crimes. That's disgusting. In one account of of, uh, his crimes, Bonin told investigators, I stabbed him in the left arm. And this is about the German, so I didn't know this at the time, but I learned this from that documentary that I told you about earlier. That yeah. this is in reference to Marcus Grobs, the German exchange student who was hiking or who was um, backpacking around the U.S. Yeah. for his birthday. He said, I stabbed him in the left arm. It surprised me that I did it. I stabbed him again and then again and again and again until he was helpless. They would try to stop me from stabbing them and I would just stab to stab. I stuck them in different places with the knife because I didn't know where to stab. You know, I didn't know where any of the vital organs were or anything like that. Fuck in hell. That's not Fucking hell. Yeah, no. Because of how casually Bonin described what he was doing, investigators were even more horrified. It was noted that throughout the confessions, many officers were trying to, like, not puke and just do their jobs, get this interview done, and leave without murdering Bonin themselves. Investigator Bernie S. Pizzito said, The thing that struck me was he was sitting there telling us in graphic detail about how he brutalized, sexually abused, and murdered these young boys like he was telling us about yesterday's news. Oh, God. Like, just what he had for dinner yesterday. 
So then I stabbed him. Then I stabbed him and I stabbed him and I stabbed him. And then I had a Salisbury steak with my hungry man. Like literally just like that. It's fucking ridiculous. After confessing to all the murders, Bonin was formally charged with 14 counts of murder, 11 counts of robbery, plus one count each of sodomy and mayhem. Now you notice mm-hmm. that 14 is not 21 that I said he confessed yeah. to, uh, yeah. but there is a reason for that. Bonin was only charged for the 14 murders that they could definitively link to him and that they were confident that they could get a conviction for. Um, they didn't want to charge him with everything without the evidence because if he was acquitted, then they would all be fucked. Yeah. They would be fucked with like, double jeopardy. Did they jeopardy. charge him later with the ones they think? Like once he actually has a conviction, do they go back and do him again? No, because those that evidence has never been able to be linked to him. And we're going to talk about that later at the end. Okay. Yeah. Jumping the gun. Yeah. However, Bonin is believed to have committed a possible 36 or more murders during his killing spree. And people actually, like that's not just him bragging. That's actually, like, they think he actually, it's like, I think we talked about that with Bob Berdella, where Berdella was like, I've probably killed like a hundred people. And Mm -hmm. I believe it. Like, I just, there's just something where I'm like, okay, I bet you probably did because you were that fucked up. Yeah. I hate that. Now, Bonin would also quickly give up the names of his accomplices during his confession. Vernon Butts was the first to be apprehended by police on July 25th, 1980. During his interrogation, he admitted to being present during some of the murders, but extremely minimized his role, telling investigators that he usually stayed in the front seat of the van and only assisted in holding down Bonin's victims. We know that. I mean, that's a pretty big part in the fucking job, holding them down. Because what if without you, he wouldn't have been able to hold them down? Like, get the, get bent. Like, I don't care. Now, go ahead. Finish your thought. No. I interrupted you. Well, I mean, like, it's no surprise that he's minimizing because, like, who's going to be like, yeah, I was there and I fucking jabbed my finger in the stab wound. Like, he's not, you know, yeah, they're not going to admit it, but mm-hmm. still, get bent. He would eventually admit to torturing one of the victims with a coat hanger. Mm-hmm. Butts told police. <laughs> but that's all he admitted to. Butts told police right. that he went along with what Bonham was doing because he had a hypnotic effect, like we said last week, and saying that... What he experienced with Bonin was a good little nightmare. I hate you. Want to rip his throat out? A good little nightmare. A good little nightmare. Fuck <sighs> you, Vernon Butts. Butts also added that it was clear that Bonin took immense pleasure in whatever act of violence he inflicted on his helpless victims. Butts would say he loved every minute of it. He loved to hear them scream. Basically. Mm-mm. Vernon Mm-mm. Vernon Butts would be charged in nine of the murders linked to Bonin. I mean, nine is a good number to get life in prison, so I'll accept that, I suppose. When he uh, when he heard of the news of Bonin's arrest, James Monroe, his last accomplice, fled the state of California. He stole Bonin's car to do this and headed home to Port Huron, Michigan. What? Just over the bridge. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) About a month later, the police tracked him down and he was also arrested on July 30th, 1980, and he was extradited back to California. He was charged with the murder of Stephen Wells, but at an August 14th hearing, he pleaded innocent to all charges. How? How are you going to plead innocent? Uh, It changes. It goes back and forth. So we'll see that. Now, Greg Miley was the next to be arrested on August 22nd, 1980. He was tracked down in Houston after confessing to his involvement in Bonin's crimes during a recorded telephone conversation with a friend. Now, I don't know if this conversation was set up with the friend and the police or how this all happened, but... Well, probably. Who just sits there and records conversations? Yeah. During... The killers waiting for them to confess. Yeah. Like, I feel like, like yeah. Like, I think, I think my <laughs> All friend... signs point to the police were involved. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine just, I'm going to record things in case I know a murderer. I'm just going to record all my phone calls. Just in case they happen to confess during this conversation. Yeah. I'm going to record it. Yeah. Now, during this confession, he would describe the murders of Charles Miranda and James McCabe. James McCabe being the 12-year-old who was going to Disneyland. Oh, yeah. Oh, my heart. Yeah. Come on. Again, Greg Miley would minimize his involvement, stating that he was mainly the driver and assisted in holding down the victims. He- uh-uh. Again, weak ass excuse. Like, I'm not accepting that. You were involved just as much. Yeah. He did admit to trying to rape Charles Miranda, but told investigators that he wasn't able to sustain an erection, so he just beat him with other objects. Uh, 
God, I have so much to say. <laughs> it's I, it's probably best that I don't. <laughs> he was charged with two counts each of murder and robbery and one count of sodomy. He initially pleaded innocent to the two counts of murder, but eventually entered a guilty plea during pretrial hearings in May of 1981. Mm. William P. would be the last of Bonin's accomplices to be found out by the police. He was already serving time in the juvenile detention center. So after he confessed, the decision was made to try him in an, in an adult court. Yes. Good. He would agree to testify against Bonin in his upcoming trial and also agreed to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter, receiving mm. only six years behind bars for his involvement what? in the murder, rape, and torture of 15-year-old Henry Todd Turner. What? Six years? <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. Uh, both James Monroe and Greg Miley agreed to testify against Bonin as well in exchange for being spared the death penalty. The district attorney also agreed to dim dismiss the additional charges of robbery and sodomy against James Monroe if he honored his agreement to testify. Greg Miley agreed to plead guilty on both charges of first-degree murder in exchange for two concurrent life sentences with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Hmm. This deal would only be good if he honor if like this deal would only be honored if Miley made good on his agreement to testify against Bond in the upcoming trial. So if either one of right. them decided they didn't want to testify, that deal goes off the table and they're facing their own trial. Mm -hmm. On January 2nd, 1981, Vernon Butts would be arraigned on five counts of first degree murder. He would enter a formal guilty plea. Sorry, he would enter a formal plea of not guilty on January 7th. Four days later, Vernon Butts committed suicide in his prison cell. No way. What a fucking coward. Yeah. He had hung himself by, ironically, twisting a towel tightly around his neck, much in the same way that Bonin killed his victim. Good. At least he got to see what it felt like to be a fucking dickhead. Butts' defense attorney was skeptical about the suicide theory regarding Butts' death, stating that Butts had been threatened by other inmates on several occasions. Not surprised. Mm, interesting. Ha yeah. However, a sheriff's deputy by the name of Jerry Menace stated that Butts was very upset about the transcript of his testimony uh, from the preliminary hearing coming out and was depressed about, like, what his friends and family might think of him and suspects that that's why he committed suicide. He didn't want to hmm. face his friends and family knowing what he participated in. No, so it could coward. go either way. Either way, he could have been murdered. He could have killed himself. We really don't know in these kind of situations. I'm leaning more towards the suicide theory, but yeah. what do I know? Bonin would also be arraigned on January 2nd, pleading innocent to all 14 charges of murder, which I think is because... You kind of have to in these kind of situations, plead not guilty, enter a not guilty plea. Uh, and there was also those additional charges of robbery, sodomy, and mayhem that he pled not guilty to. Mayhem, I looked into this, and what I believe it is, is in one of the cases, Thomas Lundgren, the first murder that we talked about, his mm -hmm. genitals were removed, and I think that's what the charge of mayhem is for. Oh, so, yeah, that would be mayhemic. Mayhem. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know either. But yeah. So I think that's what it is. Don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. Bonin would return to court on January 7th for pretrial motions and to set a trial date. Hmm. He would end up having two separate trials, one in Los Angeles and the other in Orange County, which would be held back to back. In Los Angeles County, he was initially charged with 14 counts of murder, but would ultimately be cleared of Thomas Lundgren's death. And this is because... They didn't have the evidence to prosecute, and he also, like, vehemently – am I saying that word? Vehemently. Ve vehemently? He, you're going to have to give me the definition of that. Like, he just – he really insisted that he he had no involvement in that, which they thought, okay, we don't have the evidence. He's not confessing to that murder. Mm -hmm. um, let's clear that one and move on to what we can prosecute and what we know we – what we're confident we can get the conviction from, Right. Right. So he would ultimately be cleared of Thomas Lundgren's death, along with the murder of Sean Kang, due to the fact that he had led police to the body under the agreement that it could not be used against him. So he would never be prosecuted for that murder either. That's bullshit. The murder charges involving his victims, Mark Shelton and Robert Werostek, were also dropped because the murders were committed with the assistance of Vernon Butts. And because Vernon Butts was dead, he couldn't testify. And without his testimony, they thought there wasn't sufficient evidence to convict Bonin on those charges. So they were dropped. So all these murders just get to be on, like, on. 
they, Justi- so they're still considered. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> Words hard. I know what you mean, but they're still considered cold cases. And like I said, we will get there at the uh, end. Okay. He would end up standing trial for 10 of the initial 14 murders. And his trial would begin on November 5th, 1981 with Judge William Keene presiding. In- God, imagine being that jury. In his opening statements to the jury, Prosecutor Sterling Norris told them, we will prove that William Bonin is the freeway killer. We will show you that he enjoyed the killings. And not only did he enjoy it and plan to enjoy it, he had an insatiable appetite for not only sodomy, but for killing. Mm -mm. The evidence against Bonin that was presented in court was overwhelming, to say the least. The prosecution showed blood, semen, and hair taken from the bodies of the victims, as well as from the inside of Bonin's van and home that linked Bonin to these crimes. Oh, God. They also had green carpet fibers that matched the carpet from the murder van that was found on several of the bodies. Wow. They presented... So pretty good evidence, I would say, from this point. Yes. They presented evidence of Bonin's signature killing method, which was using the tire iron to uh, tighten the t-shirts around their neck. Mm-hmm. They showed that in at least six of the murders, the victims had been strangled using a windless method, which Norris called Bonin's trademark. Greg Miley and James Monroe also testified. They would describe in graphic detail each of the murders that they had participated in. And like people were leaving the courtroom. They just oh, were yeah. like, fuck this. Oh, my God. I don't know. Oh, God. <sighs> okay. At one point, James Monroe told the jury that after the murder of Stephen Wells... Bonin took $10 out of the boy's wallet, and the two of them went to McDonald's for burgers. After eating the burgers, Bonin laughed and said, thanks, Steve, wherever you are. Oh, wow. Fuck off. Like, Get bent. You're, uh, the level of piece of shittery that that takes? Yeah. Eat many dicks. Many. Consume them at vast quantities. Yes. Bonin's defense would try to challenge the credibility of the prosecution witnesses and would use Bonin's horrific childhood as a mitigating factor into why Bonin committed these vicious crimes. They would bring experts to the stand to testify that due to extreme violence and abuse in his childhood, Bonin was confused about the difference between violence and love. They said that he did not receive a nurturing, protection, and behavioral feedback necessary for sufficient psychological development. No. Absolutely not. You know the difference between alive and dead and that being like killing someone is illegal. Like, no. And also, I think we kind of said this last week. There are people that are brought up in worse situations and under worse circumstances, suffering unbelievable abuse at the hands of people that are supposed to be caring for them and nurturing them and showing them good role modeling in their life and turn out to be a class act yeah. when they're yeah. adults. Like they yeah. overcome it. They may, they have trauma and there's no denying that, but they don't grow up to be murderers at the very least. It, yeah. it, to me, it explains it, does not excuse it. Now, huh. one, one witness that was called for the prosecution was a man named David Lopez. And he's featured heavily in that documentary that I was talking about earlier. And Lopez, he was a reporter that Bonin had granted interviews to in January of 1981. Now, Lopez Lopez did something that is basically unprecedented in his career at the time. Oh. Um, but a lot of journalists, they really don't do this because he had uh, recorded an off-the-record confession that Bonin had given to him. And he had actually went to get exempt from having to reveal that confession to police. But after a certain amount of time and hearing certain things during trial and, and all of this... Lopez finally decided that he was going to waive that himself and testify and give what he said because it would substantiate a lot of what the prosecution was saying. Like, I feel like there's ethically, like, rules about withholding your source and, like, off-the-record shit. Like, I don't give a fuck if it's off-the-record or off-the-wall. Like, you need to tell a confessed murder to the police. Like, you, who are you to play law? So... Without Lopez's testimony, they probably could have got a conviction anyways, but Lopez like evaluated his life at this point. And despite like what, again, like you said, ethically as a reporter, what most reporters would consider not doing, he thought would be 
instrumental in providing yeah, the information yeah, needed I feel like to get. Most reporters, like it should be like a law that you have yeah. to release this information. Like as doctors and like even myself, we have confidentiality rules, mm-hmm. but you break those when someone has confessed murder to you. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I don't. I'm not really like well educated on all those rules with the press, but. Nevertheless, Lopez, David Lopez, he broke broke it. He would go on and he would testify for the prosecution. Now, according to Lopez, Bonin had confided that although he resented the prospect of being executed, he had opted to kill repeatedly simply because he had enjoyed the sounds of kids dying. What? The defense would try to discredit Lopez by saying that Bonin hadn't confessed anything and that Lopez had... Now, I was confused about this. He had either paid the LAPD for the information for that they had on the case so that he could print it, or he was paid by the LAPD. It wasn't sure. I read it both ways. But at the hmm. end of the day, nobody bought that excuse from the de- um, from the yeah. defense. Um, now, later on, David, the 14-year-old survivor of Bonin, he would also testify about his experience. Oh, wow. What a brave kid. Yes. Holy cow. In closing arguments, Sterling Norris asked the jury to put themselves in the shoes of the victims. He told them, if just one of these victims could take the stand and tell you about the humiliation, the degradation of ending his life this way, there would be no question what the result ought to be. Just as Mr. Jo- uh, just as Mr. Bonin drove the van of death picking up these young kids, I ask you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, to drive the van of justice and tell him, get in, Mr. Bonin, your days of killing are done. Hmm. The jury deliberated for six days, uh, returning with their verdict on January 6th, 1982. Bonin was found guilty of all 10 murders. Uh, Just 10? Just 10. On January 20th, the jury would further find that the special circumstances required under California law had been met, and they unanimously recommended the death penalty. Wow. On March 12th, 1982, Bonin was formally sentenced to death. He was remanded to San Quentin State Prison, where he remained until his second trial in Orange County began in March of 1983. Oh, good. So they were like, okay, we got you for these 10. Now here comes the next four, 30, 12 that you have. Yeah. Well, it's only four in this one. So in Orange County, mm-hmm. Bonin was charged with the murders of Dennis Frank Fox, Lawrence Sharp, and the murders of two victims whose bodies were later found and linked to Bonin. Their names were Glenn Berker and Russell Ruff. The defense would later, or sorry, the defense would try to get a change of venue for this trial due to the publicity surrounding the case, but the judge denied this motion, stating the court, it, the court, in taking the totality of the evidence that has been presented, makes a determination at this time that there has been an inadequate showing that the defendant is likely not to receive a fair trial in Orange County. Mm-hmm. I think based upon the size of the community that there is undoubtedly a large group of individuals who either have not heard about the case or if they have heard of it, heard so little that in no way the defendant is not going to be able to receive a fair trial. Good. Bonin's mother would testify in his defense during this trial, stating that she knew her son was nothing but kind. She said if he had a bag of candy, he would just share it with anyone and everyone. Yeah, to lure them into his van. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Shut up, Alice. The trial would last for six weeks, and on August 26, 1983, Bonin would once again be found guilty on all four counts and once again sentenced to death. Good. Now, he would later go on to get butthurt about what the judge said to him during his sentencing. In an interview, yeah. Bonin would say, he told me I was sadistic and guilty oh. of monstrous conduct. I don't. Uh, yeah, because you are. I, I don't know if he sounded like that, but that's how I'm doing it. I don't think he had any right to say that to me. I couldn't help myself. It's not my fault I killed those boys. Whose fault is it then? The fuck? Yes, it is your fault. Bonin would, of course, file appeal after appeal. He hired new lawyers that argued that his original defense attorney was ineffective because he didn't emphasize just how traumatizing his childhood was. Um, Sure. Yeah, Ben. If the jury could have truly grasped just how horrific his upbringing was, it would have humanized him, and they surely wouldn't have recommended the death penalty. Nah, I don't know. After referencing the court transcripts, they could see that his attorney did, in fact, emphasize his childhood trauma. And like (laughs) we said before, this trauma explains his actions, not excuse them. Right. So it doesn't matter. No matter how traumatic your childhood was, it does not excuse what you did. 
Yeah. I cannot emphasize that more. And I personally believe that Bonin was exactly right where he needed to be based on his actions. Mm-hmm. They were. They would also claim that Bonin wasn't the ringleader in this case. It was, instead, the now-deceased Vernon Butts. But, of course, because he can't argue for himself and he's dead. They argued that because Butts had committed suicide, the state needed someone to be the villain. And that someone was William Bonin. Of course. No, I'm pretty sure it's not the state that wanted the villain. It's that he's a fucking villain. Yes. Now, of course, unsurprisingly, all of his d- appeals were denied. Now... <laughs> With all of his appeals exhausted, Bonin would spend the rest of his life on death row at San Quentin State Prison. There, he would take up painting and writing as a pastime. He- oh, well, isn't that nice? He gets to do all these lovely things. He wrote a death row. Okay. He wrote a series of short stories called "Doing Time: Stories from the Mind of a Death Row Prisoner." Fifty copies of this was were printed, and they were published at thirteen dollars a copy. People bought these. I don't understand. If you're somebody who bought that, why? I don't get it. Anyways, he would actually win some awards for some of his writings and had had aspirations of publishing a science fiction novel. Puke. I can't. Who enters this monster into the award anyways? Like, they don't, they, I I don't know. And I don't know if it was like, are these prison awards? Like, what what are these awards? Where is he getting his- block D best writer goes to. Yeah. Now, he would also spend about four hours a day playing bridge with some of his death row buddies. And I will tell you who they are. It sounds like a fucking lovely summer camp over there. They're painting, they're playing bridge, writing short stories. So, what in the hell is happening? So he his uh, bridge buddies were Douglas Clark, which was one half of the Sunset Strip uh, Sunset Strip Killers, who we'll probably cover at some point. Randy Kraft, coincidentally, another serial killer nicknamed the Freeway Killer, and no. Barf times ten Lawrence Bittaker. Ew! Uh, I can't sounds like a party i it sounds like the most horrific party anyone could ever go to i summer camp yeah yeah what um uh crap i lost my my thought never mind that's okay he would often write letters to the families of his victims in one of these letters he would tell sean king's mother that he enjoyed killing him the most because he was a <gasps> real screamer what the fuck I... and quentin prison please tell me that those letters got intercepted at like they did the, not. the what no what who's not why are they not reading these letters before they get sent out i have no idea like, I, I i don't oh, know i have no oh answer God, for that that poor mother now please tell me she got some revenge on that like that poor she, she didn't mother. she would correspond with um bonin regularly not like in a friendly way by any means she was pleading to to get answers why why did you do this and sure. she had said um, she was really hoping that he would come around because he had apparently become a born-again Christian and blah, 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 blah. But he never did. And she stopped writing because he just never – it was clear to her that he never would feel remorse or care yeah. about any of the feelings of the people whose lives he's he destroyed. So, wow, yeah. And that goes to show you that, like, a rational person – like, she's rational, right? Yeah. So I, I know that – it might not, I mean, hopefully a lot of our listeners wouldn't feel like she's not rational writing to, like, because it might seem like she's writing to the serial killer thinking he's gonna, you know, have this turnaround and that might seem irrational. But to a rational human, you think these people have, makes everybody has to have some level of empathy. Well, he didn't. Right. He just wow. purely did not, truly did not have an ounce of that in his soul. Now, in 1992, the state of California deemed that the gas chamber was considered cruel and unusual punishment after the execution of an inmate named Roger Allen Harris, who showed signs of extreme discomfort for several mi- minutes while being executed in this manner. They did- There's a gas chamber execution? Yeah. For- I had no idea of a, of a gas chamber. Like, I've heard all the other kinds. Yeah, that like- it was like a big one that they used. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Um, and it was said to be humane, but apparently it was not. In this case, he became very, like, was showing a lot of signs of distress during his execution, which, I mean, you're being, what he did was not great, but, like, I get it. You got to be humane in some type of way, but. Humane to kill a person? Yeah, okay. No, like, like I mean. It, it, no, but I mean, like, the, you got to be humane when it comes to killing them. So, 
You have to kill them politely. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to like think of the nicest way to say it. Anyways, they decided that lethal injection would now be their new method. And this is exactly how Bonin would meet his maker. Mm-hmm. On February 22nd, 1996, Bonin would be moved to a special holding cell and met with a spiritual advisor. Bonin would continue to plead for a stay of execution up until one hour before he was set to die. Hmm. Every plea he made was denied, and on February 23rd, 1996, Bonin was moved to a death watch cell where he watched Jeopardy and received his last meal. I hope it was a good episode. He ate, for his last meal, he ate two large sausage and pepperoni pizzas, Mm -hmm. three pints of coffee-flavored ice cream, and three six-packs, 18 bottles of Coke. That's a lot. Yikes. A lot of sugar. In a statement given to the warden an hour before his execution, Bonin said, I feel the death penalty is not an answer to the problems at hand. I feel it sends the wrong message to the people of this country. Young, What, that you kill 40 people? You're not going to get killed back? Um, okay. Young people act as they see other people acting instead of as people tell them to act. I would advise that a person... That, or sorry, I would advise that when a person has a thought of doing anything serious against the law... That before they did, they should go to a quiet place and think about it seriously. Oh my God. To that I say, William Bonin, after today, you're going to have a lot of time to think about things seriously. Yeah. Really. In hell. Like, fuck off. By 12 a.m. or 12.13 a.m. that morning, William Bonin was dead. And mm. he was the first ever prisoner in California to be executed using the legal injection method. No way. Yeah. So I thought that was the like the main source. No, but well, because before that they used the electric chair. They used hanging. The chair, yeah, but like I thought the chair was outruled way before the eighties like the nineties. Doesn't uh Texas still have the chair? Like can't that still Probably, be a thing? But like I we you know it's like not the main. Yeah, no. It's le- now it's more I thought lethal injection was yes. the main one. I never thought I never knew gas chamber was in there. Yeah, so now it's mainly lethal injection, but yeah, gas chamber was for a long time used as a method of of execution. So is firing squad a thing still? Uh, probably in places like Japan, Texas. <laughs> Texas? I, yeah, I was just trying to think of a country that maybe would do that, but yeah, sure, Texas. Um, <laughs> I, we're kidding, Texas. It's we don't think you do that, or do you? Let us know. None of his family members attended the execution, nor did anyone claim his remains after death. He was wow. later, or sorry, he would be cremated, and his ashes were later scattered over the Pacific Ocean, which sounds beautiful um, if you haven't murdered 45 people. Yeah, scatter them in the fucking dumpster, you bastards. Like, who cares? He murdered 45 people. I can't. I don't understand why they did that, but who knows? Now maybe I want to. Because the specials will eat them or something. Maybe. Now, I do want to spend some time talking a little bit about the accomplices here. James Monroe had pleaded guilty and received a sentence of 15 years to life for his involvement in the freeway killings. He's appealed his sentence multiple times, claiming he was tricked into pleading guilty and he had no idea that Bonin was the freeway killer until after the murder of Stephen Wells, which I say, regardless of whether or not he was the freeway killer, you just helped him murder someone. Who cares? You were still still a killer. Yeah, you just don't have a fancy title. Get out of here. Yeah, he was also written. He has also written to various governors over the years asking to be executed, and every request has been denied. Good. He's come up for parole several times, but has been denied each time. His next parole hearing will be in twenty twenty nine. Oh wow, Greg Miley. Huh. Greg Miley. You were going to say he was dead? No, he's not dead. Greg Miley was sentenced to two terms of 25 years to life for the first-degree murder of Charles Miranda and James McCabe to be served concurrently. During his time in prison, he would be reprimanded several times for violating prison rules, such as possession of drugs and contraband, and engaging in non-consensual sodomy with other inmates, a.k.a. probably rape? Yeah. I don't know why they call it. Non-consensual sodomy? Definitely rape yeah like why like why are we giving that term yeah, why are we giving it a different name so i don't know i'm just a guy he came up for parole several times but each time he was denied on may 26 2016 miley was attacked by a fellow inmate later mm-hmm. that evening he fell unconscious in his cell and was airlifted to a nearby hospital where he later died from the injuries sustained during that beating huh william Pugh, the last accomplice 
he was sentenced to six years in prison for voluntary manslaughter of Henry Todd Turner. I can't even just six years. Like, get out of here. He served less than four years and was released in 1985. So there's that. What? Huh? Nope. No good behavior. You killed someone. But you know what? You made your bed really nicely seven days in a row. So no other information about him other than that. So he's been living wow. his best life since 19... 19- For 37 years, William Pugh's been wandering the streets, a free man. Wow. That was really quick math, Erica. Did you just do that now? Or you yeah, yeah. It's really really easy when you're born in 1985. It should be easy for you because you were born in 1986. So just add one to your age. Right. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and this is coming from the girl that failed math, Okay. <laughs> California District Attorney Carol Burke has been trying to prove that Bonin is responsible for more than just the 21 murders that he confessed to, along with the other murders that he was never prosecuted for. Yeah. She started a project project called Dead Man Talking, which uses DNA evidence to link cold cases with known felons. However, sadly, Bonin's DNA was never collected before his execution, and all of his trial evidence has been destroyed. And I don't know how. I couldn't figure out how that happened, but... His DNA. What about all the semen they discovered in the oh, in the van? Yeah, so they didn't match that with anything. All of his trial evidence has been destroyed. It was destroyed somehow. So I don't know what that, that means. Crap. If it was, they're like, oh, he's dead. So let's get rid of we need storage space. Like- I don't know, or if maybe there was a flood and it got destroyed. Who knows? Oh my god. Now, the process would be extremely difficult given those factors, but she is still hopeful that one day she will find out like find the evidence she needs to solve the cold cases that he was never prosecuted for. So wow, good. I'm glad someone's still fighting for it. Somebody's still working on it. As far Mm -hmm. as like to the, what I read to in this book, I'm not sure uh, if it's still happening today, but I would hope so. Now, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I did finish the book. I mean, like as far as like when that book was published, when the book was was released, no, I did finish reading the book. Now I wanted to end this by giving, because there were so many victims in this case that it's hard to keep track of them. So before we close tonight, I'm just going to read a list of all 21 of the known victims that we have here. So they are Thomas Lundgren, 13, Mark Shelton, 17, Marcus Grabs, 17, Donald Hyden, 15, David Murillo, 17, Robert Rorostek, uh, 18. There was a John Doe who was believed to be between the ages of 19 and 25. Frank Dennis Fox, 17, John Kilpatrick, 15, Michael McDonald, 16, Charles Miranda, 15, James McCabe, 12, Ronald Gatlin, 18. Glenn Barker, 14, Russell Ruff, 15, Harry Todd Turner, 15, Stephen Woods, 16, Lawrence Sharp, 18, Darren Lee Kendrick, 19, Sean King, 14, and Stephen Wells, 18. Ugh, may they all rest in peace. I'm so sorry that you ran into that monster. I am going to try to share pictures of as many of the victims as I can. Unfortunately, those some of the pictures just don't exist. So I am going to try to share just to honor them and and get their faces out there. Uh, so yeah, so that is the case of the freeway, one of the freeway killers, William Bonin. Wow. The dick face from hell. May he forever rot in distress. Do you think that him and the other freeway killer that he played bridge with, did they think they like fought over the over, name? Like, like who, was the, who was the best freeway killer? Who got to know. stake the name? Like, no, that's my name. I'm pretty sure that Randy Kraft was also known as the scorecard killer. So I think like maybe they just were like, okay, like you've got two nicknames. You just give me, just give me the freeway. freeway. Yeah. <laughs> All it even. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. <sighs> wow. I just think it well, like, sounds like the grossest bridge game of all time. Yeah. Like I don't want to go to that bridge. Party. No. To think of the conversations they may have had. <laughs> you know what? I hope it was about kittens and knitting because that's just too much evil in one card game. Yep. Anyways, guys, we hope you all had a happy, happy Halloween and enjoyed yeah. this two episodes this week of well, That was my Honor. spook factor. I'm going to go watch some Hocus Pocus now instead of a scary movie because I, I need to clear my brain. I'm continue on, continuing on my marathon of The Midnight Club, my new favorite show. So. Thanks. 
How many seasons is there? Uh, just one. I have like two wow. episodes left and I'm very excited to finish watching it. So that sounds like the perfect yeah. end to Halloween. And if you guys want to check out a good show, a lot of you have probably watched it, but it's The Watcher on Netflix is fantastic. Ooh. I really enjoyed um, how they sprinkled in the truth of what that story is, the Watcher House story, and then like made up this whole other fucking story around <laughs> it. Usually I don't like that, but the show was amazing and I love the actors that are in it. So uh, it's a great yeah. show. If, if you haven't watched it yet, check it out. So cool. Anyways, and check out the Freeway Killer documentary on ID if you guys get that uh, I think it's called uh, The Freeway Killer, The Lost Tapes or something like that. I'll post mm-hmm. it, a link to it in the show notes, or at least the name of it in the show notes so that everybody knows what it is. And uh, yeah, like always, I'll post all our sources in there of where I got my information from. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, you can do that at storycrimepod. And if you want to send us an email, you can do that at storycrimepod at gmail.com. And if you would like to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Good Pods, I'm not going to say no. <laughs> no. Just saying. I'm not going to be like, don't do it. Do it. I, I'll, yeah. I'll take it. Just go ahead. Do it. Do it. Just, I dare you. I dare you. <laughs> uh, yeah. And if you want to help support the pod, you can visit our Buy Me a Coffee page. And we're going to be posting a little bit of content up there sometime soon. So keep your eyes out cool, for it. Cool. We'll let you know. Yay. All right, everyone. I hope you had a safe and happy Halloween, and we will see you next week. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.